Beloved, as the band and the praise team are coming down, I want you to open your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs chapter 24. And I want us to stand together and we're going to read God's word together and then we're going to pray. And we are going to dig into this text this morning. So let's stand together. Proverbs chapter 24, beginning in verse 10. These are not the, these are not the words of a mere man. These are the words of God. And this is what God says. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? You can be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is truth. Your word is truth that demands obedience. Truth that demands reverence. Truth that must command our souls. Lord, if we call ourselves Christians, we don't have the right to pick and choose what we want to believe from the word of God. We don't have the right, Lord God, to choose obedience in one area and disobedience in another and assume that because our obedience in one area outweighs our disobedience in another, that somehow that's pleasing in your sight because it's not. Father, you've redeemed us from hell and death. You have redeemed us from the consequences of our sins, which is eternal wrath in hell. You have given to us a new life. You have made us children of the living God. You have raised us from the dead. And you call us to live as those who are a new creation in Christ. Father, that means for us a lot of things. Lord, it means that you must be the one who informs how we think and how we act and what we feel and what we do. That our lives are no longer our own, but they've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we are to do all things for your glory. And Lord, it's easy sometimes to, at least I know it is for me, to affirm that in the big scheme of things and then not really think about it in specific. Help us to think about it in specific this morning. I pray, Father God, that you would grant me strength and energy and power in the Holy Spirit, Father, to faithfully proclaim what your word teaches. I pray that you'd Father, empty me of any reliance upon myself or any attempts, Father God, to, I don't know, to compel someone by human wisdom. Lord, I pray that you'd make me entirely reliant upon your spirit and upon your word. And Father, you would do your work in our midst, in our hearts, and in our lives. I pray that you'd strengthen me to say what needs said. And I pray, Lord God, that you would give receptive hearts to everyone in this room. Come and meet with us, Father. Teach us and train us. Come and teach us. For, Lord God, your servants are willing to hear. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, I want to be very direct, very straightforward in the words that I speak to you this morning. I know that doesn't... That's nothing new, right? I know. But... But... As we begin, I want to first say this. I want to confess publicly that I am guilty of failing to address 
and oppose the wickedness of abortion in our, in our culture as much as I should. Yes, I mention it in sermons where it's appropriate, but I haven't dealt with it in a full and in a comprehensive way that such a rampant and wicked sin and national sin requires. And I've confessed and I've repented of that to the Lord. And now I'm confessing it to you. And my prayer is that by God's grace, that, that sinful inaction will end the day once and for all. My desire this morning, beloved, is to preach to you the Word of God. Is to preach to you what God has to say about human life. And my goal this morning is not a, a momentary emotional response from you. Okay? It's, it's, we're not looking here for just us to feel bad for a Sunday and to be motivated to maybe do something for the next week. But the desire here is that we would be deeply affected in our souls and that we would live distinct, distinctively and faithfully Christian lives in every respect in this darkened world. So I'm not going to dance around anything this morning. Not that I'm a good dancer anyway. But I want to begin, first of all, by saying the, at the very outset of this message, I want to state the obvious truth that has been actively disguised and distorted in our culture. And here it is. Abortion is murder. It is murder. I don't care how you try to define it. I don't care how you try to, to, to paper it over. I don't care what euphemism you want to apply to it. Abortion, beloved, is murder. It is the deliberate destruction of innocent human life. It is the shedding of innocent blood. It's the willful killing, not of a potential human life, but of a human life with great potential. Euphemistically redefining elective abortion as a medical procedure or as the termination of the product of conception or whatever the newest catchphrase may be does not change what it is. Abortion is the destruction of a human life created in the image of God. It is murder. And furthermore, let me say this. I'm sick of people telling me that this is a political issue, not a religious one. It's not a political issue. It may have been assumed as a political issue, and there may be certain parties that run on this platform. I mean, let's just be honest. I'm not, I'm not, the Democrats run on this platform. But that does not make it a political issue. And it's not just a, a secular issue. And it's not just an issue of women's reproductive rights or a woman's health issue or a social issue. Abortion is a moral issue. It's the issue. It's an issue of human dignity and worth. It's a matter of ethics and righteousness. It is a matter, uh, uh, it's a spiritual issue. And ultimately, it's a God issue. And as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and who confess that the word of God is the absolute truth, we must refuse to be seduced by diversions and deflections or spurious arguments and take our cue only from the word of God. And the word of God, beloved, is, is, is transparently clear about the sanctity of human life from the moment of conception. 
Why must Christians hold to the sanctity of unborn human life? Well, trace this out with me. Let's think about this from a biblical perspective. There are several inescapable reasons. First one is this. The conviction that human life, beloved, is sacred. The conviction that human life is sacred springs from the opening chapters of Genesis. Wouldn't you know it? The very first book in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God distinguishes human beings from the rest of the animal creation by saying these words. Let us make man, how? In our image. In our, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So... God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I would just say, if we would stick to this initial testimony in these first two verses, we wouldn't have near the confusion about abortion or genders or transgenderism or homosexuality or any of the other sexual deviancies we're dealing with in this world. Man is not the product Of millions and millions of years of evolution. He didn't spring forth, mankind, from some lower form of life. Mankind is a special creation. Specially created in the image of God. Capable of rational thought. Having personality and and personhood and moral responsibility, right? Mankind is the crown, the climax of creation because he alone is made in the image of his creator. Amen? And since that's true... Prenatal life, this is the second point. Prenatal life, the life of a child in the womb is fully human and fully precious to Almighty God. Consider David's words in Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. Speaking to the Lord, this is what David says. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, in, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That's a Hebrew idiom for the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was None of them. The growing life in the womb, it's not a chance happening. The growing life in the womb is a unique work of God. The creative work of God, whereby He knits together a being in His own image. God's doing the knitting. God is the one who is superintending this entire process. The conception of a baby is not merely a biological one. It's a divine work. The Lord is the one who sees a baby's yet unformed substance. He's the one who actively shapes and develops the baby in the womb from the moment that the sperm unites with the ovum. Conception. He is the one, God Almighty, who gives life. 
God the Almighty is the one who shapes and sustains that life. God the Almighty is the one who superintends His divine biological process and weaves together this new life, both the inward parts and the outward parts, from the moment of conception. What David calls his unformed substance, the Hebrew word is golem, from the moment of conception. There's a distinct human being being made in the image of God. An individual with a human soul. One that God knows intimately. And every single day that he formed for him or for her. In fact, Scripture knows no distinction between a baby in the womb and a baby outside of the womb. I say that because... Scripture uses the exact same words to speak of children in the womb and children out of the womb. For instance, Luke chapter 1, verse 41. And when Elizabeth saw the, or heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. We know who that is. That's John the Baptist, right? And those are no ordinary, you know, pregnancy, strange feelings. It's a baby leaping. Then Luke chapter 2 and verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Well, that's Jesus, isn't it? When the shepherds were told by the angels what they should look for to identify the one who's to be Messiah. Verse 16. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Luke 18, 15. They were bringing even infants to Jesus that he may touch them. All of those words are the same Greek word, brephos. It means a small child, even one yet unborn. It has nothing to do with size or development or location. In fact, consider the context of Luke chapter 1 and verse 41 with me. The interaction between Elizabeth, the mother of John, and Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke records it for us. Just listen to the whole thing. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. I want you to think about this with me for a moment. I want you to think about this. Because it's very important to the abortion argument these days. Elizabeth was in her sixth month of pregnancy, right? When Mary conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit. So Elizabeth was in her last trimester and Mary was in her first trimester. And yet the unborn John rejoiced, left for joy in the womb in response to Mary's greeting and in the response to the presence of the Christ. In fact, Philip Riken says this. It says, these verses show the joy that comes whenever anyone recognizes that Jesus is the Christ. The first to recognize him was John, whose calling it was to announce Christ's coming. What's remarkable is that he began to fulfill this calling while he was still in utero. By the inward witness of the Spirit, the child recognized the presence of Christ. Jesus was not yet viable, invisible in his mother's womb, yet John knew him to be the Son of God, unquote. And surely, the Lord Jesus Christ was more than just an inanimate an inanimate or lifeless clump of cells. In fact, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ itself 
is a profound testimony to the sanctity of prenatal life. Think about it. Theoretically, God could have sent Christ to the earth as a grown man, right? Right? Send him as the second Adam. Adam was not formed as a baby. Adam was formed as a grown man, correct? Theoretically, he could have sent Christ as a grown man. But in God's wise plan, our Savior engaged in the full span of human existence. And what did that encompass? Conception to death. In order to fulfill the purposes of God. In other words, listen, beloved, the history of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth did not begin when he was born of Mary. It began when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. His human history, like ours, began at conception because that's where human life begins. And because he must be made like his brothers in every respect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and make propitiation for the sins of his people, Hebrews 2.17. Prenatal life, the life of the child in the womb, is fully human and precious to God. And for that reason, beloved, third thing we need to realize is the Bible forbids us from shedding innocent blood. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? Exodus 20.13, right? is unequivocally clear, is it not? You shall not murder. You shall not murder. I'm going to tell you what, it doesn't take a seminary degree to understand the clear meaning of those words, does it? In fact, Genesis in Genesis 9, 6, God told Noah, right? This is how serious this is. God told Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. That's why. God brought horrific judgment, slaughter, upon the nation of Israel for the very sin of destroying their own children. Psalm 106, verses 37 through 38 says, They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They poured out Innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land was polluted with blood. And God didn't stand idly by and say, oh well, God brought judgment. His wrath was kindled against them because they offered their own children to godless idols. I want to ask you, how is abortion appreciably any different? Last, Christians view children as a gift from God, don't we? As a blessing from the Lord. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5 says to us, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. A baby is not an interruption to my plans. A baby is not an inconvenience to my desires. A baby is not a problem or a liability. A baby is a heritage from the Lord, a reward from God. A child in the womb, no matter the size or the state of development, beloved, is a unique human being created by God, designed for life from the moment of conception, precious in his life, formed in his image, and a blessing from the Lord. And so no other rational conclusion, listen to me, no other rational conclusion can be reached but that elective abortion is the murder of a human being, period. 
John Calvin said, The fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. And it is a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in the field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. If we're people of the book, if we say yes, my convictions, my thoughts, my beliefs, they are shaped by the word of God. If we say that with any sincerity at all, then what we must say is that my unalterable conviction is that human life is sacred from conception. And that means we cannot sit idly by while people are mercilessly murdered in their mother's wombs. And that brings us to the text that we read this morning. Like These are serious words. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 10 through 12, which is particularly applicable to the scourge of abortion in our country. Now, it's a text, deliberately so, these are how Proverbs are written, that is, that is general and yet at the same time exceedingly pointed and widely applicable to many instances and situations and especially as it relates to the killing of innocent human life. Read it with me again. Let your eyes look at this text again. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? How does this text relate to our standing against abortion? The first thing I would say to you is this, that standing against abortion requires courage and it requires God-given strength. Look again, verse 10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. You know what he's saying here? He's saying this. He's saying, look, if you fall back, if you, if you grow quiet, if you withdraw in the day of testing and in the midst of the battle, then your strength, your moral courage, your convictions, whatever you want to call it, they are small and they are insignificant. That's the idea of this verse. That if you shrink back, then whatever talk there may be about Your courage, it's just talk. Without question, to oppose and expose the wickedness of abortion is going to require of us a strong sense of conviction. It's going to require of us resolute courage and determined strength that can only come from the Lord. And why is that? Why is that? Well, here's why. It's because to do that, to stand against abortion, is to set ourselves against the powers that be, isn't it? It's to set ourselves against the political party that's currently in power. It is to set ourselves against the social pundits and the social influencers, against the mainstream media that is sure to use only the vocabulary of the pro-abortion side. It is to set ourselves against what has been the norm in this nation since 1973. Every time I think about that, I'm astonished. To stand against abortion is going to open you up to unfair attack and defamation, to cries that you're closed-minded, you're a religious nut, you're a woman hater, you want to take everybody back 50 years, you're a science denier, you're a zealot. But beloved, convictions require, they demand action or they're just opinions, aren't they? If your convictions don't require of you action, then they're really just opinions, and I might say loosely held. If we 
truly believe that babies in the womb are human beings, then science, then silence, or the failure to do something, the failure to engage, whether it's out of fear of man or self-preservation or apathy or I just don't have enough time or because the battle seems too great, listen to me, is to be complicit in the wickedness of that sin. We've got to engage the battle where we can and when we can. And it's not optional for us. Look, you remember Paul's words to the Ephesians. He said this. He said, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Ephesians 5.11, right? Now, you know what I can say as Christians, we're pretty good at remembering the first half of that verse, but not always the second. We're good at the first half of the verse, like not participating in the unfruitful works of darkness, those things that are sinful and wretched in the eyes of God, right? Now, listen, I'm not you know, decrying that. I'm not saying that's a bad idea. We, we should seek personal obedience to the Lord. Yes and amen. But beloved, that's only half the equation, isn't it? We're also to expose the unfruitful works of darkness for what they are. And that includes abortion. Look, the multi-billion, B, the multi-billion dollar abortion industry that's championed by Planned Parenthood with its seemingly sympathetic saleswomen and well-dressed and manicured practitioners of death with their well-practiced lies and deceit, their pretended advocacy for women with their drop-down menus of innocent children's remains for sale with its deluded and spiritually darkened pro-abortion activists and their Satan-inspired mantras, the one Satan whom Christ called a liar and the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. Listen to me. The pro-abortion multi-billion dollar industry can only survive and thrive, beloved, in the darkness. This is a dark place, our world, right? But we're called to be light in the world. We're called to speak the truth and to stand on the truth. And in the words of Christ, to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now listen, not everybody, not everyone is, is, is going to see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. Watch a few, you know, pro-abortion protests and you'll see that. But beloved, that's not the point. Some will. Not all, but some will. And so we've got to bring the light of God to bear upon this this horrific sin of abortion. And by doing so, what we do is act as the conscience of our culture. And our culture needs one. And we shine the truth in the darkness. You know what I think? I I might be wrong, but here's what I, I really do believe. You know, most people don't need convincing that killing a baby in cold blood is wretched and immoral. They don't really need to be convinced of that. What they do need to be convinced of is that abortion actually kills a baby. They don't need convincing that, that it's wrong to dismember and poison an innocent human being. What they do need convincing is that abortion does just that. They need to be pulled out of their stupor to hear and to see the truth that we are made in the image of God and that human life is sacred from the moment of conception and that there is a God to whom we will all give an account. And He has sent forth His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save us from the penalty of our sins and our rebellion against God. They need to hear the truth. And so we must speak it fearlessly because defending the unborn, those who have no voice, listen to me, it is our duty. 
It's our duty. And I say that because of this very next verse. Look at verse 11. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Beloved, if, a, if an innocent human being is in danger, God-fearing people ought to do something about it. If, if, if innocent human beings are in danger, God-fearing people are to come to their rescue. Martin Niemöller, the German pastor that was imprisoned during the time of Nazism, when they were carting Jews off to be killed in concentration camps, said the ones who bear the most blame in all of this is not the Gestapo and it's not the SS. It's not the National Socialists. The ones who bear most of the blame are those Christians who kept silent and who did nothing and who rationalized it as obedience according to Romans 13. Beloved, we are to rescue those who are being taken away to die, the most vulnerable above us, among us. We're to hold back, to restrain those who are stumbling to the slaughter. It's not a small consequence. You know, we teach about the horrors of the Holocaust and the horrors of Stalinist Russia in our schools, or at least we used to before they went woke. The numbers of human beings murdered are atrocious, and yet they are minuscule. Compared to the tens and tens and tens and tens and tens and tens and tens of millions of children who have been murdered in the womb since 1973 under the red, white, and blue. It's an issue of life and death. 3,000 children in America daily are being taken to death, stumbling to slaughter in a supposedly civilized society. Nearly a million a year. And that's not counting chemical abortions. The most vulnerable of us all are being poisoned, starved, crushed, and dismembered, torn limb from limb. And then their lifeless bodies reassembled on a surgical tray to ensure that they, quote, got it all. If that doesn't qualify as a slaughter, listen, I don't know what does. And that's to say nothing of the horrific effects of abortion on mothers. Many of them deluded and confused by the repeated lies of the abortion industry. Some who know exactly what they're doing. But all of those who later come to realize what abortion really is. And the mental and the physical and the emotional and the spiritual effects that are horrific. So what do we do about it? What can we do about it? One thing is certain. We can't just sit idly by and claim ignorance. We can't say we didn't know. If we say we didn't know, beloved, be certain that God does. God does. Look at verse 12 with me. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? We can't claim ignorance before God. He knows us through and through. He weighs the hearts of men and women and He knows our souls. He knows what we really know in our hearts. And He knows when our ignorance is willing and guilty ignorance. And yet, it's interesting, isn't it, that the first part of this verse does suggest that there is deception afloat by which we might say, I didn't really know. That there is deception afloat, an effort to conceal the truth 
When it comes to something like abortion, to camouflage its grisly reality, so people might, in fact, be ignorant of the truth? And there is. The practice of elective abortion, I said earlier, it can only continue in darkness. It can only continue, beloved, under the cloak of deception and deflection by keeping people ignorant, whether it's willingly or innocently, and by keeping them confused. Jesus said in John chapter 3 and verse 20, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and he does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. The pro-abortion crowd continuously labors, beloved, to deceive and deflect from what is truly taking place in abortion, which is the cloaked murder of the weakest among us. But when their talking points, when their talking points are drug out of the darkness and examined in the light of truth, you know what happens? They're immediately revealed to be the lies and the deliberate obfuscation that they are. Let me just give you a few examples of what I mean. Let me just give you a few examples. You know, because sometimes we hear the pro-abortion rhetoric and we say to ourselves, man, I don't even know how to respond to that, right? You'll hear pro-abortion people say, well, Christian pro-lifers are imposing religious arguments on a secular society. And so they're violating the separation of church and state. Can I tell you what? I've had, I've heard this one. Can I tell you what? That's a sham argument. In fact, it's not an argument at all. You know what it is? It's a deliberate deflection. It's a dodge. It's not a refutation. It's a dodge. Listen, arguments are either valid or invalid, correct? They're either true or false. Isn't that true? And evidence bears forth what they are. Isn't that correct? Pro-lifers, you know, argued that it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion does that. And if pro-abortion people can logically and truthfully refute that argument, man, then have at it. But to dismiss it with a label is to prove the weakness of your own position. Oh, that's religious, so I won't even, I won't even handle that. More, here's a question. You ever thought about this? Why is it always constant harping on the separation of, of religion, the church and the state? Why not hand-wringing over secular metaphysics and the state? Or secular academia in the state? Or feminist theory and the state? Do Christians get to participate in society or is that right only reserved for secularists? Look, does human life have worth? Yes or no? It's a simple question. But to reject it as a religious one is cowardice. Second, they'll say, well, what about bodily autonomy? A woman's got a right to choose what she does with her body. It's about reproductive freedom. They keep changing what it is. Listen, nobody who's pro-life is saying that a woman doesn't have a right to bodily autonomy. Nobody's saying that. She's got the right to choose what she eats. She's got the right to choose what she wears. She's got the right to choose who her friends are, what she enjoys, who she has sex with. Everybody's got bodily autonomy to a degree, right? But not when that autonomy infringes on somebody else's rights. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? I don't have the bodily autonomy to just assault somebody for fun, do I? Do I? I mean, there are people I can think of, but I don't have that right. I don't have the right to, you know, drive on the other side of the road. I don't have a right to murder someone. Listen, the baby in the womb is a person distinct from the mother's body. And no one has the right to kill another innocent human being. 
The woman has the right, certainly, to do what she wants with her own body, but not with somebody else's. And the argument, well, she wouldn't actually be committing the abortion. It would be the doctor. She wouldn't actually be doing it. Well, nobody has the right to conspire with another human being to kill a human, an, an innocent human life either. What about the right to choose? Listen, the right to choose what a woman does with her body isn't the question. Choice is not what's being debated. It's the result of choice that is. In other words, listen, we hear women have the right to choose. Yeah, but how about you finish that sentence? You know what I mean? How about you actually finish the sentence? No, just leave it off at the word choose. Finish the sentence. A woman has a right to choose what? Well, an abortion. Oh, an abortion of what? Well, an unborn human being. If that's the argument, then why stop there? I mean, really, if that's the argument, why stop there? Do I, do I, do I not have the right to, to choose an already born human being? Do I not have the right, say, to, to choose to kill my teenager or a vagrant or my neighbor or my parents or you? You? Mr. Pro-abortion? No, well, why not? This whole argument for choice, unrestricted choice, nobody has that in our society. Nobody has that in the world. Nobody has that anywhere. It's a fallacy. And that argument only leads to anarchy, and it leads to the tyranny of the strong, the destruction of the weak. Well, what about reproductive rights? How about you give me a definition to that? What do you mean by that? Reproductive rights. What's that even mean? Given the fact that 99 and one half percent of abortions, all abortions, are the result of consensual sex, it would seem to me that what we're actually talking about here is the right to engage in sexual intercourse with anyone and everyone without any fear of consequences. And if the preservation of that right involves the killing of another human being, so be it. And that's nothing less than depraved indifference. Once upon a time, they said, well, the fetus, can I, let me, hold on real quick. The fetus, right? They want to pull that out as if it's different than a baby. You know what the word fetus, where it comes from? It comes from Latin. You know what that word means? It means offspring of any age. I could say that Sam is my fetus. A long time ago, they used to say, well, the fetus isn't necessarily human. I remember when I was a kid, I remember being taught you know, I think I was like in high school, how the, 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 the baby goes through the dog phase and the eel phase and the cat phase and all this other garbage. Remember that? Oh, there's a time when there when it's got gills. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. But they'll say, well, you know, they used to say, well, it's not necessarily human. But now that science has conclusively proven that at the moment of conception, the fetus is genetically distinct from his or her mother, the talking point has shifted to this. Well, human beings are not necessarily human persons. Oh. See, pro-abortion zealots must grant that the human being, the human, the unborn child possesses human DNA. So in a sleight of hand, they turn the question to personhood in order to find some way to justify the murder of said babies. And so they come up with some arbitrary criteria that are required, they say, to make someone a full person. Babies in the womb are not persons, they say, because they don't meet these certain benchmarks of personal performance, such as self-awareness or speech 
or the ability to do things on their own or independence. They've not yet developed certain organs. You know, they, they, they haven't begun certain biological processes. They aren't a certain size. Who establishes that criteria? Who gets to pick what makes something human or not? A person or not? Who gets to play God in this matter? What are, what are the criterias? Who, what, why are, are these the criteria for, for personhood, right? I mean, think about it. You could say the same thing about a newborn, can't you? Those who are helpless, they're, they're, they're not self-aware. They're incapable of speech. And in fact, can I tell you what? That is the ultimate goal. You think I'm kidding? I'm not. You remember our own governor, or former governor, praise God, whose answer to an unwanted child born alive was to let it sit there on the tray and, you know, we'll maybe do something to alleviate its pain, but let it lay there until it dies. You gotta have, you gotta meet certain benchmarks in order to be considered a person, right? That line of reasoning is ridiculous and it is dangerous. And I'll tell you why. What about the severely mentally impaired? What about the developmentally disabled? What about those who suffer dementia or the comatose or the para or quadriplegic or those who have suffered a stroke? Or when it comes to the whole organ thing, what about somebody who's had an appendectomy? Do they lack personhood? If we're talking about size, is a professional football player more of a person because he's bigger than the five-year-old kid who plays t-ball? Is that what we're saying? No civilized human society assigns personhood on the basis of functionality, capability, and size. No one. All that's required to be a person is to be a member of the human species. That's it. Their argument of personhood is a distinction without a difference. Children in the womb are smaller, they're more dependent, and they're less developed, yes, than a grown adult. But all of those, beloved, are quantitative differences, not qualitative ones. But perhaps the most reprehensible and morally depraved position as it regards personhood is this idea that an unborn baby is only a person. It only has worth if that child is wanted. If that seems insane... It's because it is. It's the very rationale. I mentioned earlier the, the dehumanizing and the depersoning of the Jews in Nazi Germany that led to the Holocaust. I want you to think about this with, with, this with me for a moment. Paul describes human fallen humanity in, in Romans 3 by saying this. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. When there's no fear of God, beloved, then the controlling impulse of fallen humanity is not God's truth and it's not His commandments. Rather, the controlling impulse of humanity are the corrupt desires of mankind. It's what I want. It's what seems good to me. In effect, here's what happens. The will of the mother becomes the will of a God. Are you hearing me? She's given the power of life and death over her child because she is given the right and power to determine personhood according to whether or not she wants the child. When God's no longer the creator of human personhood, endowing all life with dignity because it's made in the image of God, we've got to give that right to somebody else, right? In our society, our secular society has. We've endowed women with the right and the power to create personhood based simply on whether or not she wants the child. 
rightly, the scriptures tell us there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death, and quite literally so, for the multiplied millions children that have been murdered in the womb. Who gave someone the right to choose whether or not someone is a person because according to their desires, they are or are not wanted. It's nothing less than the deification of a person. They will claim abortion is a compassionate alternative. To spare the child of the pain of entering this life, either disabled, unwanted, or subjected to a life of poverty. It's a compassionate alternative. That's compassionate. What's the uncompassionate option? Nobody's got the right to make that determination for another. In fact, can I say this? It is a strange and a twisted compassion that would take somebody's life, that would murder someone based upon their presumption of what another human being would desire and what they perceive such a child's future might be. Who are you, Nostradamus? How darkened is the thought that someone could make a choice for a child who has no voice by killing it and then piously pretending that their murder wasn't really an act of murder. It was an act of mercy because it was done as a humanitarian favor to the child. Okay, I have an idea then. If that's what you want to go with, I have an idea. Would it be acceptable to you, to these people, to have another person decide the worth of their lives and bring summary judgment upon them? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Two more. Really quickly. They'll say, you know, the pro-life position is illegitimate because you pro-lifers, you don't care about a whole life agenda. Strangely, that's become like one of the Prominent leftist talking points in recent years. This argument that, you know, somebody who's pro-life, if they don't support an expansive government and welfare state, then he or she is not truly pro-life. It's nothing more, beloved, than, again, a silly deflection. As Christians, here's the truth. We care about a range of social issues, don't we? And we can choose to agree or disagree on several of them. However, it doesn't follow that if we are pro-life, We must therefore be pro-big government or pro-welfare expansion or pro-basic universal income or pro-be a lazy piece of garbage and stay at home and collect a check for the rest of your life. It doesn't mean that. To be pro-life does not require the adoption of some other position to give it credibility. In fact, I love what Dr. Mark Newman says. He says, Individuals and organizations that make it their exclusive mission to save human beings from a culture hell-bent on butchering them have nothing to apologize for. They don't need additional causes. Innocent human beings shouldn't be murdered. The pro-life belief effectively boils down to that one simple maxim, and it doesn't need any further validation. The last one that I'll speak to 
And I'll speak to it because it is emotionally charged. And it's this question. What about in the instance of rape? What about that one? I know it's a sensitive issue. I get it. I have a daughter. First, let me say this. That whenever pro-abortionists bring this up, they're being dishonest. There's not a single pro-abortion activist. Well, let me be careful. Most likely, there is not a single pro-abortion activist that if rape was conceded as a legitimate reason for abortion, would be willing to give up everything else. Women's right to choose? Okay, I don't want any more. That's cool. That's not going to happen. It doesn't happen, in fact, in cases where that's offered or been, you know, talked about. Although the percentage of women that seek abortion as a result of rape is very small, it's a serious question. What about that? Victims of rape are estimated to be one half of one percent of all those who seek abortions. One half of one percent. So what can we say to that? Beloved, there's no denying that rape is a morally repulsive and wicked act of violence and rapists deserve greater and harsher penalties than they currently receive. Moreover, victims of rape deserve our deepest compassion and support and love. But a baby conceived through rape is still a baby. And that baby, painful though the circumstances may be, listen, has done nothing wrong. And perpetuating another act of violence against an innocent victim isn't the solution. I had a seminary professor when I was at Southwestern. His name was Jack McGorman. He taught me Romans. He was a Scottish guy. I used to love just listening. Ah, Jack McGorman talking about Romans. It was great. He had a daughter that was mentally infirm who was raped by her care worker and who became pregnant. There were several people, several seminary professors who counseled Jack McGorman to have the child aborted. Who said, it's a terrible thing to do to your daughter. And so, really, God will understand. And Dr. McGorman said that, that thought, God will understand. God will excuse me doing what I know to be morally wrong. It weighed on his heart terribly. And he prayed with his wife, and he prayed with his daughter, and he sought, you know, he studied the word, and he came to this conclusion. How someone is conceived does not determine who he or she is. And he said there's one person who deserves capital punishment in this case. And it is not my grandson. When a woman becomes pregnant through rape, her family, her friends, her church, if she has one, her community, must gather around her and support her and help her in any way that they can and encourage her as she makes the decision between life or death for that child but between whether she mothers that child or gives it up for adoption a life is a life and even a baby conceived by rape has done nothing worthy of death and killing the baby doesn't undo the crime 
But elective abortion is an evil that occurs and is tolerated in our society because of its deceptive words. And we've got to dispel the fog of lies by speaking the truth. Despite all the arguments, despite all the subtle wordplay and the deliberate confusion and deflection in order to attempt to justify abortion. Listen, God knows what abortion is and he will repay. He will repay. Abortion's nothing less than an attack on his sovereignty. It's an attack on his person as Lord. An attack on his sovereign authority as creator. As the giver and the taker of life. As the judge of the living and the dead. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior and the Redeemer and the Lord of all who trust in Him. It's an attack on God and it's carried out through the murder of the defenseless who are made in His image. That's what this is. It's to put ourselves in the place of God and to commandeer to ourselves the right to determine who lives and dies according to our own selfish desires. And Scripture says, God will repay. He's the holy and righteous judge of all. And He hates sin. He despises the shedding of innocent blood. And He's the judge of all who participate in it. He's the judge of the mothers who abort babies or of the fathers who encourage it. Or of... Those grandparents who have counseled it or friends who have encouraged it. He's the judge of those who've sold abortions and the doctors that have performed abortions and the advocates for the practice of abortion and of the pastors who have counseled for abortion, the legislators who promote abortion. We cannot ignore abortion because God does not. Have you ever wondered why it is it seems like our society is on a continual downward slope? When do you think that began? It began with the sexual revolution and the determination that children were worth nothing. And rather than being a culture that celebrated life, we became a culture that celebrates death. We can't talk about God, but we celebrate Satan. It's foolishness. It's absurdity. And to fool ourselves into thinking that God doesn't take note and that God will not repay, that is just whistling while you're walking through a graveyard, buddy. So what can we do? We can't be idle, but what can we do? How can we make a difference? It seems overwhelming. It does in our own strength. But praise God, we're not fighting in our own strength, right? So what do we do? Well, first is this. This, We need to pray and fearlessly speak the truth. We need to pray and fearlessly speak the truth. Listen, God has given us a weapon, has He not? That no unbeliever has. The power of prayer. True or false? It's the mightiest, it's the most powerful weapon in the whole world. We actually, we actually have the ear of Almighty God who responds to the prayers of His people, who hears and acts in ways that are beyond our finding out. And we must pray for our nation. We must pray for repentance. We must pray for God to open blinded eyes and for Him to change hearts and for those who are killing the unborn. Look, we can be filled with righteous anger all we want to be. And I do feel it, and I know you feel it. A righteous anger against what takes place. But listen, we've got to pray to the one who has the power to do what we can't do in our own strength. We need to call upon the Lord. We need to seek His face in prayer. We've got the weapon of prayer, and we need to use it. Can I say to you, and I mean this in all love, I think one of the weaknesses of the Christian church is this, is that we spend more time complaining than we do praying. 
Seems like every Christian I know, including myself, man, we can rail on and on about the wickedness of our culture, can't we? Boy, we can just tick it all off. Who the enemies are, who are the good guys, who are the white hats and the black hats, and all that other stuff. We do a lot of complaining. How much praying do we do? How much real praying do we do? I think not enough. And that's why we're encouraging prayer this week and praying and fasting on Wednesday. We need to pray. You remember what Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying for. For the demonstration of God's glory on this earth. For the rescuing of the physically and the spiritually perishing. For the purifying of the church. For obedience to his commands. So that his will is done on earth as it's done in heaven. Perfectly, quickly, obediently, right? And we've got to fearlessly speak the truth. Listen, beloved, we're on the side of truth. We're on the side of truth. We've got the truth, first of all, of real science. Okay, I'm not talking about Fauciized science. I'm talking about actual real science. We're on the side of real science. We have the truth of that. We've got the truth of natural law. But above all, what do we have? We've got the truth of the Word of God, don't we? Don't we? And sometimes we say, well, you know, in our culture, the Word of God's not going to get it done. I beg to differ. Because I believe what God says of His own Word when He says in Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 29, Is not my Word like fire, declares the Lord? And like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be a preacher. Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5, through 5, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are powerful to the pulling down of strongholds. And those two weapons are prayer and the Word of God. Use them. Second, listen. We have got to proclaim forgiveness in Christ to those who have in one way or another been complicit in this sin. Right? We can't say, well, I I never had anything to do with that. And then, you know, pat ourselves on the back like the Pharisee with the publican. Remember, I thank God that I'm not like other men. There's hope. And there's forgiveness. And there's healing for all who have been involved in abortion. For those who've had them. For those who've encouraged an abortion. For those who have counseled abortion. For those who have been silent about abortion. And even for those who have committed them. The grace of God is greater than our deepest sins, right? We believe that, don't we? Don't we? The blood of Christ, the sacrifice of the Son of God on our behalf, it's sufficient for the forgiveness of all our sins, right? It's not a fairy tale. That's the truth. I know, sisters in Christ, there may be some of you here that you've had an abortion. Or brothers, maybe you were the one that was encouraging her to get it. Maybe you did it in ignorance. Maybe... You were deceived. Maybe you just didn't know what else to do. And this seemed like the solution. Or maybe you knew what you were doing and did it anyway. And though you've confessed faith in Christ, you still, you're under a weight of guilt and shame. And you wonder if God can really forgive you. He can. He will. He does. 
where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I'm encouraging you to unburden your heart this morning. Nobody's cut off from Christ because of their past sin, any past sin. For, for the repentant, listen, there is forgiveness and there's cleansing and there's hope. And Jesus offers you forgiveness this morning. So confess it to Him. The sin can't be undone. It can't be undone. But praise God, it can be forgiven. Third thing is, we need to support the people that are on the right side of this issue. For example, we need to support the Blue Ridge Women's Center. We need to support organizations like Love Life. We need to, you know, support those that are doing the work to oppose abortion in our culture. And we can't all be involved in the same exact way. For some, it might be financial. For the others, it might be, you know, it may be in serving and sacrificing time, maybe to learn how to be a, a street counselor. I know some of you have been talking about that. And you want to do it. There's your opportunity. But find a way to make an impact. Now, listen, it's unreasonable to suggest that everyone in the church should be working equally relentlessly to end abortion, right? However, it's not unreasonable to suggest that everyone in the church should at least be doing something. Fourth, we need to speak to one root of that problem, which is sexual immorality. Can I tell you what? I think it's very few, very few and far, very far, few and far between. Is that you say of people that I counsel many times anymore for, for marriage that hasn't, haven't already, you know, engaged in sexual relations. Whether previously or not with necessarily even the person they're getting married to. Like, it is, it's, it's rampant in our culture. And we act like it's just no big deal. Oh, boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. No, listen. Listen. Let's not bury our heads in the sand and pretend like the lack of sexual purity is not contributing to this problem. Especially when you've got people, 54% that identify as Christians. Right? Are you hearing me? I want, let me go back for a second. There are several people that I have married that have been pure. I just, I don't want to cast all of them in that, you know, bad light. So you're all sitting there like, oh, well, let's think about who he's married recently. Right? Just thought about that. I probably need to go back. Right? But here's the deal. Beloved, we live in a world right now where we need to be practicing, well, we always need to. We need to practice sexual purity and we need to teach it to our children and especially now because we live in a world that's rapidly seeking to sexualize our children from a young age. And if you think I'm making that up, you need to look at the the WEF and WHO guidelines that our government is considering adopting as to the introduction of sexual material to children in daycare and in school beginning at the age of three years old. we got to protect our kids. We need to train them up and bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord and to honor sex as the good gift of God that it is, but for a husband and a wife. Amen? Fifth thing. We need to take our pro-life convictions into the voting booth. Now listen, I know what people say to that, because I always hear this. Oh, so you're saying become a one-woman voter, or one-issue voter. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying become a one-issue voter. That's not what I'm saying. And that's the latest derisive term, you know, these days. Oh, you're a one-issue voter. Shame, shame. Right? I'm not saying that. Being pro-life does not qualify anybody for public leadership. Just because you're pro-life doesn't make you qualified for public leadership, okay? It doesn't. I know plenty of people that are pro-life 
that I wouldn't want running anything. I love them, but stay in your pay grade, bro, right? I'm not saying that, but I am saying this unapologetically, that being pro-abortion completely disqualifies anyone and everyone from public office, no matter what their party or the rest of their platform is. Oh, that's narrow-minded. Is it really? Let me ask you something. Would you vote for somebody that said, you know, women need to be made available for rape at any time? Would you? Of course you wouldn't. You'd be like, that guy is a reprehensible moral uh, human, human being. That is ridiculous. That is a horrific perspective on women. Abortion is murder. And it is a horrific perspective on human life. We need to vote our Christian convictions. And if we believe and we say that children's lives are worth saving, then we need to stop voting for parties and start voting for people. You hearing me? Then the last thing, beloved, is this. We can't ever stop preaching the gospel. In season and out of season. Right? Our primary calling as a church is to preach the word of God. To preach it in season and out of season. To proclaim the gospel, man. To call men and women and children to confess and repent of their sin. To turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. To, to trust in His saving work, His law-fulfilling life. His suffering the wrath of God against our sin on the cross. His paying our debt and winning forgiveness for all who will repent and believe. His resurrection from the dead. His ascension to the right hand of the Father and His Return to judge the living and the dead and to save to the uttermost His people who are His people through faith, saving faith in Him. we got to preach the gospel. I love what Abby said because it's true. Yes, the goal is to save a human life. But it's so that human life might be saved. You hearing me? Our ultimate hope is not to create just a, a breed of more moral sinners who will still perish on the last day, right? We've got to preach the gospel and we need to trust in the power and the purpose of God to save sinners according to His sovereign will. Changed hearts. Transformed lives. The saving work of God in Christ is the only way that we're going to see real and lasting change in our culture. Our concern for the unborn must also lead to a concern and a pursuit of all people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the ultimate answer in this world of darkness. And so let us continue to preach it faithfully in the power of the Holy Spirit and pray that God would move in a way in our nation such as we have never seen. I want you to think about it. As we've looked in the history, if you're on a Wednesday night person, you'll know this. Like it, it always seems that whenever it looks the darkest, that's when God breaks through in a way that's unprecedented, right? So let's pray for that. And let's start right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our Lord and our King, God, you are worthy to be praised and you are worthy to be adored and you are worthy to be exalted. And Father, you're worthy to be confessed as sovereign over everything because you are. And Lord, your word is the truth. And your word shows us clearly your concern for human life. 
the sacredness of life created in your image. The responsibility that we have as your people in a culture that allows and promotes the wholesale murder of children in the womb to stand and be a voice for those who do not have a voice. Lord, that we're to rescue, we're to rescue, Lord God, those that are being led to death and hold back those that are being, they're stumbling to slaughter. That we're to, to do something about the most vulnerable. Give us courage that we need. Give us conviction where we lack it. Father, give us determination and unflagging courage to do what needs done. To pray to you and seek your face, Father. To pray earnestly, deliberately, God, for the impact of your truth and your power upon this world. To pray that hearts will be changed and that blinded eyes will be opened, that the murderous would be convicted in their souls and they would see the depth of their sin and the greatness of the gulf that stands between them and you and the judgment that awaits them. And God, they'd hear the gospel and they would flee to Christ for salvation. Father, I pray that what we talked about this morning would become more, Lord God, than than just, you know, theological truth, but it would be personal to us. And rather than hoarding our lives to ourselves, we'd gladly give our lives away for the sake of something greater. So Lord, I pray that you would come and you would move and you would apply these words to everybody's soul in this room in the way that you need to. And the way that seems best to you. I pray, Father, that you would bring forth life here. I pray, Father, that if there are some who need to seek your face and repentance and, Father God, seeking forgiveness, that, Lord, they would do it and that, Father, you would grant it, and I know you will, because you are a God who delights to forgive the truly repentant. God, I pray for those that are in this room and maybe uncertain about how to get involved, that, Father God, you'd give them a clear path and a clear understanding of how to do it. I pray, Father, that all of us would be moved by what we've heard this morning, not just simply emotionally, But, Father, in a way that really does change and transform the way we live. Thank you for your word. And thank you for this time in it. We bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.